went to school at the Moody Bible Institute. A few of you may have heard of it. <laughs> and I had a roommate, uh, and he was an unusual guy. He liked to listen to Bob Dylan. Anyone remember Bob Dylan? <laughs> There's a lot of laughter going on in the room. Yeah, and he had really big speakers, and he played it all the time. I got to hear songs like, God gave names to all the animals in the beginning a long time ago. And he would wax eloquently on the great theology contained in such songs. And I was reminded of uh, some of the songs played endlessly in my room and college. This uh, past week, I was in the grocery store. It used to be town and country and some other store along the way. I don't know. When it's Strax Van Til, is that what it is? And I, as I rounded my way through the vegetable area, I saw a young person with a T-shirt on. And on the back of it, it said these words, follow no one. Always lead. And I thought, well, that person perhaps doesn't know anything about what's on the back of his shirt, or who knows. But one thing I know, friends, if you're ever going to lead anyone, you're going to have to learn how to follow first. And it reminded me of the Bob Dylan song. Anybody? Guesses? Anyone? <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to serve someone. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve someone. And that is certainly obviously true here in the book of Judges. As we see the nation of Israel go through this period of time, 330 years, uh, repeating over and over again this, this thing called we call the sin cycle. There they are following God. They look at what gods their neighbors are serving, and they join them there. And they serve hard after these idols. And God is angry with them because God saved them out of Egypt. He redeemed them out of this bondage to set them free, to bring them to this good place, this promised land where they could serve him and God would care for them and provide for them abundantly. And yet their hearts were continually turned away from him. And God would raise up one of these people whom they couldn't wait to be like to hold them in bondage and oppress them. And the same is certainly true here in verse 10. And after years of oppression, they would cry out to God and God would raise up one of these judges to deliver them. But something's different here in verse in chapter 10. Take a look at, with me as we see that Israel continues on in its unfaithfulness to God. Which, by the way, might be a temptation to some to say, well, look, it doesn't really matter if they sin or if they follow God. I mean, God's going to take care of them anyway. Take careful note of this chapter, my friends. We see that God continued to provide judges for Israel here in verses 1 to 5. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of, uh, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. And after him rose Jar the Gileadite, who judged Israel 
22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities and called Havath Jar to his this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jar died and was buried in common. And so we see this particular judge must have been quite wealthy. I mean, it seemed to me that this perhaps judge lived on easy street. But when we come here to verse 6, we see that the people of Israel, don't miss this, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. These were Canaanite gods, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Dagon, the fish god. Why did the Philistines have a fish god? Because they lived on the coast, and guess what they did for a living? They fished. They created their own gods, my friends. And they forsook the Lord. The scripture tells us, and they did not serve him. And you know what happened? God gave, turned, them, uh, turned them over into the hands of their enemy. Just exactly what you would expect by now. So the anger of the Lord, verse 7, was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, in the hands of the Ammonites. Into two people's hands at this point. And they, look at the words here, they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And we need to pause here for a moment and say, who are these people? The people beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites. Why is Israel in the land of the Amorites? Well, because you're good students, you will recall that when God led the people of Israel out of the slavery in Egypt as they were headed toward the promised land, even just on the other side of it, two and a half of the tribes, of the ten tribes of Israel, asked Moses, can we just stay here? I mean, this land looks particularly set up for us. We have cattle we're not the, the people with sheep. We've got cattle here. And this is ideal for us. So two and a half tribes said, we want to stay on this side of the Jordan. Now, Moses was quite angry when he heard that and said, look, you're going to abandon your people and turn into the... He said, oh, no, no, no. We will fight with all of the people going into the land and clearing out these Canaanites. And only when the land has been occupied will we go back. And so they're on the other side, the west side of the Jordan, the west side of the Jordan. And so these people were, were vulnerable out there on their own. Yeah. But here, 18 years, we see they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed to the Jordan to fight also against Judah and, and Benjamin. Now, they were in the southern part of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely oppressed, severely distressed, my friends. The result of sin... 
Now, here's a dilemma that we as Christians face. What if my life is going particularly hard right now? I mean, just difficulty. It feels like I'm walking through 12 inches of mud everywhere I try and go. Now, you need to ask yourself a question. Is this the discipline of God in your life? Or is this God shaping and sharpening you and preparing you for something ahead? Perhaps the only way to know is, is the Spirit of God convicting you of sin? If so, friends, it's time to turn around. You will notice the, they were in distress for 18 years. Do you know why? Because they never turned to God. They never repented of their sin, of worshiping these idols. And because of it, they continued on in this distress. And I want you to notice here, friends, as we go to verse 10, eventually, after 18 years, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now, at this point, perhaps those words had even been placed to a tune. And they had the percussion and they had the horns and they had the whole thing together. We have sinned against God. It's time for you to show up. Because they did it over and over and over again. But I want you to notice there's a different chorus to this one. Verse 11, and the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines and the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Sidonians, also the Amalekites, the Moanites oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you from their hand. Yet, verse 13, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will serve you, save you no more. Let's pray. Is it possible that there is a time in the hardness of our hearts, in which we continue to walk away from God, that God will simply say, keep on going. You want to hunger and eat after all of this sin and lust and selfishness? Go have at it. It appears to be so. But I want you to tell you this, my friend. This is a strategy. This is not God who has given up on his people. God made eternal covenants with these people. Eternal starts with a really big capital E, which means there's no break in it. There's no end to it. Same kind of covenant God made with you and I when Christ died for our sin and he gave you the faith to trust in him. But I want you to tell you something here. God said, not now. We've been through this too many times and you've learned nothing. And so God says that's enough. And I want you to see what the people did in response to that. The possibility that God should never raise them up again. Verse 15, and the people of Israel, they finally repented. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. And they forsook their sin 
There it is right there, verse 16. And they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord. Hey, pay attention to this. You don't want to miss this. This next line, and he, that being God, became impatient over the misery of Israel. As hard as it was for them to continue endure the repercussions of their own sin, it was just as hard for God to sit there and watch it. Don't you miss this for a second, the revealing of God's heart for his people. This is not mechanics for God. They do this, then they do this, then I do this, then we do that. This is a God who loves these people. That's the wonder about love is rarely do the people love deserve it. That's what makes it love, by the way, and not like. Love is a sacrificial commitment, and it is here capped. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then verse 17, notice the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together. And they encamped at Mizpah. And the people and the leaders of Gilead said to one another, well, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? And he shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. There seems to be this just never-ending cycle of, we just, if we just had a better leader, we would be better people. <laughs> Some people believe that when it comes to nations, too. If we only elect the next guy or the next girl or the next one or the, here, there's our hope, our only hope. Friends, they haven't learned it and maybe you haven't learned it, but our only hope is God. They're living in this period of, of Bible history called theocracy. Who is the king? It is God. It is God who is their king, and yet they continue to look for a man who will lead them and be their king and save them so they never have to go through this again, which tells us they still don't get it. They still don't get it. But I want you to notice here, my friends, the Lord continued to save them from their enemies. Now, we see that Israel continues on in their sin. And by the way, so do you. And so do I. And we see it. And perhaps God takes a moment to reveal it to us along the way, to remember our sinfulness, our appetite of the flesh. And he keeps on saving us from it forgiving us of every one of these sins. But our response ought not to be to nod and keep going. There ought to be repentance to it, my friends, forsaking that sin. And notice here in verse 1 of chapter 11, yeah, we're going to hit three chapters in total here today, so let's keep moving. He raised up a warrior. He raised up a warrior. Look at here, a mighty warrior. Verse 1, now Jephthah... The Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And like others in the scriptures, he was hated by his brothers. Just like Joseph and just like Jesus. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. 
And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Hmm. What does oppression do to people? Well, I suppose it shapes you one way or the other, depending on what you're made of. We have the makings of a very bitter person here, don't we? We might expect just that, someone to lash out on others because of what has happened to them before. And so he raised up a warrior, a mighty warrior hated by his brothers and a man with nothing to do. So then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. I think pronounced would be Tob depending on what school you went to. <laughs> and it means good. And worthless or empty or idle fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And you will notice here, as we get to chapter, or chapter 11, verse 4, he's a man without a grudge. What an unusual person. I wonder, do you have a grudge this morning against someone? Perhaps a group of people? grudge. What's the end game of that? Oh, you'll get them someday. Really? Is that one of the fruit of the Spirit? Revenge? I don't think so, friends. Be careful of that. He was a, a man without a grudge. Look, he was abandoned by his family. We know that. And after a time, the Ammonites made war with Israel. And the Ammonites made war against Israel. The elders, and the, and Gile, uh, elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? I mean, why have you come to me now when you were in distress? And here's that big opportunity, right? It's going to stick it to him, right? Doesn't happen, friends. Verse 8, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, well, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. <laughs> now, let's face this. This is disingenuous. They know Jephthah is a great warrior. Let's turn to this guy. Tell him what he wants to hear. No, we want you now. We like you a lot. Really, you've been our pal forever. We just missed you. There's a bunch of baloney here, friends. Yeah. Jephthah said to the uh, elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, don't miss this, friends, and the Lord gives them over to me, I'll be your head. I like his perspective. Not if I win this battle, but if the Lord wins this battle. Let's see. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people, made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Seems like he's a man of prayer. A man of faith, trusting in God to win the battle. And a man of prayer. 
but he's also a man of diplomacy. Look at verse 12, or uh, yeah, verse 12 here. And Jephthah sent messenger to the, uh, messengers to the king of the Amorites and, or Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? And the king of Ammonites uh, answered the messenger to Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. This is about land. Battle Israel knows well even up until today. You've taken our land and we want it back. Now, how do you respond to such a thing, an accusation? Defensively? Hmm. Take a look at how Jephthah responded. And Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. And Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. He's reviewing the facts here, my friends. You want to know what happened? Listen carefully. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab. They went the long way, in other words. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the battery, bat, um, <laughs> boundary of Moab. And Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please, let us pass through your land to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and encamped to Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited the country, and they took possessions in all of the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon and the Jabbok and the wilderness of the Jordans. So then, the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before the people of Israel. And are you to take possession of them? You want to know what else we know about this guy? He apparently knows his Bible. He knows the history here, my friends. He knows exactly what the Lord did. And he continues to point to what the Lord has done. If the Lord gives victory, he goes and talks to the Lord. And now he is pointing this king back to what the Lord has done. And he asks for a very reasonable response. Perhaps this guy should show up in more leadership conferences. But here is this man who responds to this perhaps better than you and I would. Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? Verse 24. Look, our Lord, our God, Yahweh, gave us this land. Would you not take the land that your God gave you? Very reasonable question. In all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, 
Are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, or the king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Did he ever go to war with them? The answer is yes. And how'd they do? They lost. While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and the Aror and its villages, and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? Hmm. And he leaves the decision now in their hands. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him. Unreasonable response. Now take a look, my friends, in verse 29. We want to see who the Lord is using. Take a look at verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And so the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Now this is... uh, An interesting point, an important point to make, the difference between you and I as followers of Christ and Old Testament saints like Jephthah. The Spirit of God would come upon Old Testament saints for particular um, missions or duty or for particular reasons, but then the Spirit of God would depart from them after that mission is done. You and I, the moment we put our faith in Christ, are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are marked by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God, as Paul describes it, is like an engagement ring from God. Think of the God who keeps his promises, a promise of the inheritance to come. There is no reason for us to be concerned that that God would remove his Spirit from us. Unlike King David, after his sin with Bathsheba, And he prayed, take not thine Holy Spirit from me. Well, that certainly was a possibility, but not for you and I. And so it is important to note that Jephthah is um, filled with this, or empowered by the Spirit of God at this moment in his life. And here we come to verse 30. The one thing that Jephthah is known for misses all of the points that we have made thus far. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give me the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Let's take note here for those of you who are stressed about this. Well, put your mind at ease in just a moment. Jephthah is making a vow to the Lord. God, if you will give this victory into my hand over these people, I will offer to you whatever comes through this door, a burnt offering. That's what it says, right? Yeah, we'll take a look at this again in just a moment. Hmm. Well... The Spirit of the Lord is upon him, and he makes a vow of sacrifice. Filled, empowered, filled with the Spirit of God. 
So verse 32, we see what transpires here. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Minnith, 20 cities as far as Abel Karamin. Yeah, we'll go back and read that one later. With a great blow. And so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. Reminds me of how I'm greeted when I come home and Melanie is with her tambourines. (laughs) Or maybe just a big smile. It's the same thing. But I want you to notice here, remember that vow, whatever comes out to greet me? Going to offer? Yeah, let's take a look at this. And here we, we imagine some violin music playing in the back. And she was his only child. Besides, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes, a sign of repentance. He tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. There's a verse to underline. And I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father... Well, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies and on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my life. It doesn't say that, does it? Weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. And then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her life. It doesn't say that on the mountains. He made a vow and he kept the vow. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. And she had never known a man. Why is it that we keep mentioning virginity here? Hmm. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Some kind of honoring event. What is it that she did that they honored her for? It doesn't seem like a memorial service here. Something's going on here, my friends. But first, I want you to notice this very carefully. Don't miss this. In Psalm chapter 15, verses 1 to 5, the psalmist, likely David here, is, is, is asking this question. Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? I mean, who will dwell on your holy hill? Who is acceptable to you? Who has intimate fellowship with you, God? This is the question. And then he answers it. Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. 
who does not slander his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend in eyes whom a vile person is despised, hmm. but who honors those who fear the Lord. And here it is. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who is it that is acceptable to God? The one who makes a vow and keeps it. Though the circumstances change in his head, he keeps his word. He keeps his word. A man who swears to his own hurt. Well, I didn't know that. Yes, but what did you say? Person of integrity. I want to tell you a number of reasons here, six reasons why I believe that he did not offer his daughter as a burnt offering. A, the Spirit of God was upon him. The Spirit of God being upon him is not going to enable him to offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. Okay? So there's number one. Number two, the ridiculousness of what if it was a neighbor or a child or an unclean animal that came to... It just wouldn't work that way. I mean, that you know, oh, it's a child. Well, I must. I'm sorry. I mean, even to his own hurt, right? Textually, in the Hebrew, the word "and" in this statement will give him to the Lord and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. The word there is "vav." I said it. <laughs> it's not "wow." It's Bill knows Hebrew, and he knows why that's funny, but, and I said it just for you, all right? The, the word can be translated or. In other words, depending on what it is that comes through the door, it will be either be dedicated to God or sacrificed as a burnt offering. Grammatically, that is just as possible as and. It all depends on the context. We're not done there yet, friends. Suppose he did offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. How would this happen? How would he do it? Well, if he's, he certainly wouldn't take her out of the backyard and light a fire. That's not how you offer a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. You go to the priest in Shiloh, and off you go. And then you bring her to the priest. I am offering this as a burnt offering to the Lord. A, uh, child sacrifice or any sacrifice of a person is, is, is uh, condemned by the, the law. So that wouldn't happen. The priest would certainly say, we ain't doing this. I mean, even the worst of the worst priests, even on his own dark in the darkness of night, not going to happen. Now think about the townspeople who know what's going to happen. They're not going to step up and stop this. I mean, there's too many reasons to believe that this didn't happen as far as a burnt sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 27, which many of you know and perhaps have already memorized this in your heart, is part of the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law says if, if you have vowed this sacrifice, there is a way to pay another sacrifice to remove from this sacrifice. And certainly the priest would have said, hey, 
This is how you do this. You pay this sum of money, and this becomes the sacrifice in place of this other sacrifice. Look it up. I'm going to say it again. Leviticus chapter 27, verses 1 to 8. So paying the proper amount of money could have redeemed his daughter from the vow. It didn't happen, friends. What did happen? He dedicated his daughter to the service of God. She did not marry. She did not have children. Her life was dedicated to God. One of the hopes of every little Jewish child was that they might have a son, and that son might become the Messiah, the one promised, and that was taken away from her. The word virginity over and over and over again being celebrated is that is what was sacrificed in her life. And you might argue, what right did he have to take that from her? Well, you can argue that, but we're just looking at the text. The God who raised up a warrior, a man with seemingly nothing to do, a man without a grudge, a man good at diplomacy, and a man of integrity who kept his vow. You know, in the New Testament, you can read about this guy. He shows up in Hebrews chapter 11. If that doesn't spark something in your head, let's start that here today. Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as the faith chapter. It begins with a definition. Now faith is, and then it is filled with illustrations of those who operated on the level of faith. And you get down to about the bottom there. And a couple of the judges, just a couple of them are mentioned in this faith chapter. One of them is Jephthah. And I ask you this, if this man had sacrificed his child, contrary to the law, would he be in that list? Everybody shake your head. Didn't happen. Well, we get down here to chapter 12, with 78 verses. I'm just kidding. There's 15, and we'll go through it quick. We see that um, Jephthah finishes his course. And there doesn't appear to be anything in his life that you could point a finger at and say, what a monster, what a horrible person in light of understanding this vow and the fact that he kept it. He finished his course. No millstone is dropped from a tower on his head to be shamefully put to death. We get to verses 1 to 3 here in chapter 12. He's accused by the Ephraimites. Now, this is the third time in this book that the Ephraimites have showed up at the tail end of a battle and said, we want some credit for this. And the men of Ephraim were called to arms. <laughs> the battle is over, by the way. 